there's always this discussion about the intersection of science fiction and horror. And often people bring up Lovecraft um, and and the idea of the cosmic horror. But when I think about cosmic horror, I don't need Cthulhu. (laughs) All I need is cosmic timescale. All I need is, is unknowable or unknown, maybe not even unknowable, but unknown forces that are at play in interacting with humans in ways that we can't understand. And I think this movie is a great example of what cosmic horror is. I, I This is a horrifying movie in many ways. It's awesome and, and awe-inspiring, but also pretty horrifying. Welcome, friends, to episode 228 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week we discuss Stanley Kubrick's 1968 film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. So in the pantheon of films that we've covered and projects we've covered for this podcast, this is one of the more intimidating ones to approach here, mostly due to just sheer magnitude and size that this has in the film community and what it means to science fiction and what it just means in general. Yeah, so I had never seen this movie. So I'm coming in like a babe in a weird bubble uh, to watch this for the first time and get my experience. And um, full disclosure, I just finished watching the movie about 30 to 45 minutes before recording. So not only have I only seen it once, I have also just barely had time to sit with my thoughts about it. Yeah, I really wish that you had a little bit more time to process this one. It's okay, because uh, we we, we're have we going to describe the way we're going to cover this. It's very unusual for our podcast, because we always tackle the book first and then the movie. In this case, this movie was, writ, was uh, based on a short story by Arthur C. Clarke, written in 1951, called The Sentinel. Now, that is kind of just like a kernel that formed the basis for this whole story. That story we will talk about briefly, um, and then we are going to cover the novelization, which was uh, written alongside the development of this movie, is my understanding of it, and we're going to do that next week. Um, I, I, I assume this is going to be a lot of um, answers to a lot of the questions that I have, <laughs> um, and whether or not those are canonical, I think will be up for debate, because it's Arthur C. Clarke versus Kubrick. and They worked on both things together, okay. but I think each person was sort of driving their own mediums. Yeah. ultimate uh, vision of what was going to happen. Sure. So, I, I mean, we're going to get into all of that. And so we'll revisit some of this stuff next week. I'll have more time to sit with it and um, see if I, like, any of my feelings about it change over time, reading the no, uh, the novelization, if that changes things for me. And we'll talk about Arthur C. Clarke as an author, um, which I, you know, I'm very interested to get into, but I, I'm, we're going to hold off on because, like you said, this movie is just so big, such an important film that we want to devote as much time as we can to it in this episode. Right. And to that end, um, I mean, we have to just get your fresh first perspective take on on this film. I know that, you know, most people see it as a, as a slow burn 
I think that it's clearly very influential for sci-fi in general and just genre filmmaking and and the ways that Kubrick likes to have his attention to detail at like, I don't know, boundary pushing level at at all times. So like to to bring all those things together, like how did you how did this strike you as a movie first? Uh, It was incredibly good. This this movie lived up to all the hype, which is almost impossible. Um, The closest I think we've had to this was when I watched The Godfather for the first time for the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very different, right? Because The Godfather's a crime drama. Um, and it's got incredible performances, amazing filmmaking. But like this is mind-bending science fiction written at a time where just the, 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 the concepts being dealt with were so new. And... It's amazing to me. Like I look I had to look it up. Like we landed on the moon in 1969. Mhm. This movie comes out in 68. So the people who are like the, the as as America is watching the moon landing, this movie has come out and people are probably all thinking like what are we going to find? And it just the just the way that would play to someone who doesn't have any concept of that, right? Like they know we're in the space race at the time this movie's coming out. And then I know there's all these conspiracy theories about Kubrick fake, faking the moon landing, all this shit. So, like, it's such an important film in film history. And then, and then you tie that into American history, and it's just, that's unbelievable. Yeah. You want to hear another crazy, I mean, and you're talking about the audience seeing yeah. it. It's, think about developing it, because this movie took four or five years to make. Right. The the famous picture that you've seen of the Earth is called the Blue Marble. That mm-hmm. that photo was taken in 1970. So, like, literally getting the perspective of the universe Yeah. and all of this, like, future tech from someone who hasn't seen a picture of the entirety of the Earth. Yeah, he foresaw how profound that picture would be, and I imagine the person who took the picture may have seen this movie. As along with everyone else who lived at the time. Yeah, that's so that's so wild to think about. Like I didn't know all the details going into this. Um but like d- d- you take away all the history behind it. This movie looks incredible. Um the cinematography, the the color composition, the scene composition, it is so rich and so vibrant. And beautiful. Um, there's so, there's like a sparsity to it. Um, it. There's a there's like a really everything's clean in a way that like the alien movies, for example, um, are all dirty and grimy. And I feel like maybe even in, in response to this movie and how clean everything is, it has such a specific look and texture to it um, that were, were were fantastic. And the filmmaking tricks that are employed were other were just amazing because like I know that they're not using computer graphics, right? This is 68 and and these long confident shots of like I'm just going to show you this scene and not cut and we're going to watch someone walk around a room and appear to defy gravity and like I feel like a lot of this stuff we've seen more and more these days so we're maybe a little bit like desensitized to it but this had to absolutely blow people's minds when they saw it for the first time yeah i mean i want to talk about the look first because you're touching on that so you know you talked about the color of course there's a lot of good color pop but there's this white sort of look at the shots of the spaceships like are meticulously shot to how they would actually look in space with the reflection from a star of of the sun in the distance i couldn't believe how accurate to like space 
physics and stuff. I mean, I'm sure there's some inaccuracies, but there was a huge attempt. And again, like we're just starting to learn about this stuff at this point. I mean, I don't think it will surprise you to hear that there were physicists that came on to work, like leading people that were leading their fields in terms of understanding uh, space travel and what NASA was developing and right at the cutting edge. And and Kubrick was so meticulous about wanting it to be as realistic as possible because to, to gear up to what this, why this film is so monumental is sci-fi wasn't taken this seriously before in film yeah and and i would argue in other mediums as well like like um there is a there's a certain seriousness and tone and uh like respect given to this sort of film that historically sci-fi was a lot about monsters and way over the top campy sort of things um and so you see a film like this, and I've heard Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, like all these filmmakers that Christopher Nolan all talk about. Oh, I bet Christopher Nolan. <laughs> I was thinking about Interstellar a lot while watching this. A lot, this. <laughs> because it's basically the same movie. But, uh, <laughs> well, no, but but you could see the clear influence. Is, well, is yeah, it's huge. it's the narrative approach where this might be more more uh, sort of surgical that's than like like scientific and specific. It's like the narrative emotional version, I would say, okay. in some sense, especially with the endings sort of feeling similar. But um, Steven Spielberg said this was his generation's Big Bang. Like this film, uh, he, Lucas, these people were in film school when this when this comes out. And wow. Lucas has come out and said that he doesn't make Star Wars without this. He did. He would have never thought to attempt what he was able to attempt um, with Star Wars because Kubrick did it first. And like to, to be able to do that and the just, you know, you take Kubrick's hyper fixation on detail and you blend it with hyper realistic cutting edge technology and the things that i mean they predicted the ipad in this movie literally i know i i couldn't believe it i was like they have tablets in this movie that's it's just it it goes on and on with this but yeah so the cinematography is unmatched i mean like you you get this sense that you the way that he chose to to frame the camera and a lot of times compose scenes like you said were upside down we we're we're we don't have any orientation because we're in space and that makes sense to express that through the cinematography it was so engaging like it's in a a film that doesn't have a lot of talking not a ton of dialogue a lot of silence very much left to your interpretation of what's happening and also just watching this like it's art it's just especially Mm -hmm. like you take the operatic music like classical music and you blend it with these super long takes and i i know some it's not for everyone but like it's just like unmatched there's nothing like it and like people have attempted but it's like to come to this level is it's impossible it's the only one person could have done it it's totally for me um i i do think that the way we cover things trains us and trains me at least to watch a movie in a certain way and that the way i watched this movie taking notes thinking what am i going to be able to say about this that is the perfect way to watch a film like this it's the perfect way to watch the green knight like we've had some of these movies where there's so much going on there's so much sort of interpretive stuff it's so rich and when I'm giving myself a hundred percent to a film and 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 almost studying it as I'm watching it, I get so much out of it. Uh, this movie was made at a time where you have to consider w- what it meant for science fiction when it came out. Um, this movie is profound and interesting, I think even today, uh, even though, 
it doesn't necessarily look as like convincing as maybe some effects we get today. There are times where you can clearly tell it's a model. There are times where you can tell there is a painting uh, backdrop. There are things that you can tell, okay, but like it looks really good regardless. Don't get me wrong. Um, we've just seen some incredible space films these days, right? And we are used to a certain pace and level of action in a lot of movies. And this this isn't that kind of movie. Um, there's always this discussion about the intersection of science fiction and horror. And often people bring up Lovecraft um, in this in, in the idea of the cosmic horror. But when I think about cosmic horror, I don't need Cthulhu. <laughs> All I need is cosmic time scale. All I need is is unknowable or unknown, maybe not even unknowable, but unknown forces that are at play in interacting with humans in ways that we can't understand. And I think this movie is a great example of what cosmic horror is. I, I This is a horrifying movie in many ways. It's awesome and, and awe-inspiring, but also pretty horrifying uh, at different times. Um, so this, I, I love that. I love sci-fi horror blends, and I love cosmic horror. I think this movie actually is one of the better cosmic horror movies I've ever seen, which is kind of weird to say because I don't think I hear this being called that very often, but I absolutely was getting that. I can see, I can see why it's not labeled as cosmic horror, but I like that your interpretation brings a lot of that to it. So, you know, I, I don't think you'd be surprised to hear that, like, it was extremely divisive when it came out critical response and audiences. Um, I think most people were in awe of what they saw, but some people also felt like, you know, the beginning 22 minutes or so have, have no dialogue. It's yeah. very much like you have to buy into this atmosphere that, that Kubrick is building. And you talk about like the, the, the prehistoric sort of dawn of man scenes. Right. Yeah. Right. And then there's, there's an additional little bit too, where it continues to not have any dialogue until he gets yeah. to the base, I believe. And I, I think, you know, especially to today's audience, that's that's unheard of almost. There's not many films that are going to let you have half, like 30 minutes of the film, basically, before you hear someone speak. Um, and then and then the ending of the film also has, I think I read somewhere, there's like 88 minutes of of not, no dialogue in the film where there's like not any dialogue happening. Yeah, I believe and it. And to, to believe in, in yourself that strongly that you can tell a story with just like a razor's edge of story. I think at least he does that at the beginning so that you can kind of check the box of whether you're in for this experience or not. Um, you know, that's kind of like the the barrier to entry is like, did you make it through the first 30 minutes and enjoy yourself? <laughs> then you're probably going to like the rest of it. Man, I, I was so into it. And again, the way we're watching this movie, I think, lends itself. But like if you if you can actively watch the movie and like be thinking, why? It, why is he doing this? And that's what I'm at, right? I'm like, why are we lingering so long? What is being conveyed to me in these scenes? Why, you know, this sequence? What's being told? And um, and it's, it leaves me to try and interpret. And I think that's where he wants you to be. He wants you as an audience member to be asking those questions and to be interpreting what you're seeing and trying to suss out meaning. And I love that. And I think the movie all the way through wants you even near the end. I don't think that there's like a there's a actual ending. I think for a long time, people have 
kind of argued back and forth what this movie is even about. Oh, I bet. <laughs> I bet. Uh, so, and going back to the critical re- response, like um, a lot of n- critics noted that it was an exploration of existentialism, mm-hmm. uh, human evolution, technology, yep. AI, uh, and then obviously extraterrestrial life. And um, the film now is widely regarded as one of the greatest and most influential films ever made. In 1991, it was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the United States Library of Congress and selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. And, uh, well deserved. Like I can, I can tell that that's absolutely true. And I think in terms of like Amer- especially American-made films, it's it might be the most aste- aesthetically significant and culturally and historically yeah. significant. Like I can't think of a film that ha- carries this much weight and baggage. I'm with sure there it. are some, but it's up there, right? It's up there, yeah. And like so, e- I want to say even today, regardless of it, again, its historical importance, which is difficult for me to like completely ignore. But I genuinely love this movie. I thought it was great. I don't know if it's my favorite sci-fi movie of all time, but it's up there. It's in the conversation and and watching it in 2022, you know, that says something. Yeah. And I would also say that whatever your favorite sci-fi movie is, owes a, you know, a debt of gratitude to this film. Of course. Yeah. I mean, so many movies do. So many sci-fi movies do. Absolutely. I want to ask you what your history is with this movie. Do you remember the first time you saw it and how many times have you seen it now? Yeah, I was much too young the first time I saw it. It was one of those times where people like uh, told me it was one of the greatest movies of all time. And I was probably like, you know, 13, 14, yeah, something like that's that. That's a bad time to watch this movie, probably. <laughs> it's not a good time to watch it. It's extremely slow in the beginning. It's like, it, I just, yeah, I, I didn't, uh, it definitely was not on my list of favorite movies at a time when I was like, Jurassic Park is my favorite movie. Like, yeah. it's kind of hard to, to switch gears to something like this. You know, I then revisited uh in college for sure i think i've probably seen the movie five times now and each time it's like it's it's meant more to me and and this time maybe the most because i i really understand the cultural significance and then just like having worked in the film industry and trying to like fathom what it would even be like to not only create something this intense but under someone like kubrick with someone who it, it just like it's a it's an uh, every movie's a miracle that it gets made but this is like this is pretty much the only thing like it you know yeah like i told you before it took four years to create um two years with actors two years with special effects um like half the budget was spent on special effects uh and everything you know all the model work and everything that you were noticing meticulously time-stakingly created they were shooting in like they were creating like mechanical rigs and things to to give motion to yeah. the to the ships, and they're you know they're they're taking like longer exposure of the of these ships and everything, and just the way like it took such a long time to make such a small amount. It's almost like a stop motion animation. Yeah, so many magic tricks being employed. Like I know that there are all these tricks, perspective tricks, like yeah, slowing things down. You know, all these things that that achieve these effects are and they're all incredible because you can still use them today and like I, that's the thing that i hope people don't lose you know don't lo- don't lose sight of of what we had to do before we had computer graphics to just do everything for us yeah i mean like you know use your use your resources where you see fit but like because you can save yourself a lot of time nowadays and yeah. still achieve something something incredible but yeah I, just the fa- the main thing is like we're talking about like you talked about the rotating 
the rotating um, rigs, basically, where we were able to create the sense of people walking on walls and yeah. weightlessness and things like that. So those were actually physically engineered and created for this film, right? Sure. So like yeah. giant, there's this giant cylindrical like structure as big as a house yeah. that was created for this, that that was filmed into. And there's so many of these shots that are like this, where like there's actual physical motorized motion happening with the structure while they're filming into that. Yeah, it had, had to be. I mean, I'm watching it. And I'm like, I can tell what's actually happening here. So it's like a marvel of like carpentry and engineering and like filmmaking. And, and the only reason I can tell that is I've seen other people do it in other movies. Right, like Christopher Nolan in Inception. Inception, yeah. I'm thinking of there's a there's a Metallica music video called The Memory Remains. That's the entire music video is like this. Um, it's like a rotating thing. So like there's just I've seen it enough and I've like learned how it's achieved enough times um, to where I understand it now. Isn't even like what was that one? There's like a Sugar Ray song where they did something like this, right? I believe it. Yeah, yeah like music video. So I'm like, okay, I I know what this is, but at the time, this had to be, you know, like pretty groundbreaking for most people who saw it. I mean, like I didn't even I watching it as a modern viewer, trying to figure out how they practically had that the the red pen floating when yeah. he was I assume just on a just on a just on a string or something, I don't know. Kind of they use a piece of glass with the perspective to where you couldn't see it. And I guess when she pulls it off, you can kind of see that she's like pulling it off of a surface if you wow. look really closely. But she plucked it right out of the air. It looked completely believable. Like I would never would have thought. I, I thought for sure. I'm like, they don't have CG to, to erase the string. Like, what are you going to do? It's amazing. Um, anyway, before we get too far along into the movie, which I know um, we're both eager to talk about, let's take maybe five, 10 minutes to talk about the short story. And then we can get into that. So this is technically based off of a short story called The Sentinel by Arthur C. Clarke. I will describe Arthur C. Clarke, you know, in detail next week. Um, But one thing I did see about this that I feel like is notable is that he wrote it in 1948 and uh, attempted to have it published for a BBC competition in which it failed to place. Uh, It was first published in a magazine called Ten Story Fantasy in its spring 1951 issue under the title Sentinel of Eternity. It was subsequently published as part of a short story collection in 1953, 1967, and 1972. And um, it would, I think that's when he changed the name. Despite this story's initial failure, it would go on to change the course of Clark's career, which I could totally see, right? Especially with the adaptation that ends up getting made. Um, so just briefly, the story is pretty different than the movie, other than this sort of kernel that a lot of the movie builds off of. And basically, the story starts out with this moon geologist who, uh, or I forget what he says. He says, if you want to be pedantic, it's this other thing, which means like study of the, of the moon's geography. <laughs> anyway, um, he is on the moon. He's with someone else. He spots something in the distance, and he's like, I'm going to go check that out. And then he takes him and this other guy go to look into it to investigate it. And when they get there, they find a, this weird pyramid that has been thus far undiscovered. Now, it's notable that there's a base on the moon. They talk about driving in these, like, crawlers. Um, so there's this sort of moon travel has been established. And again, 1948, he talks about how there's this force field. He doesn't call it a force field, but there's like some sort of uh, energy surrounding the thing. It takes them 20 years, we find out later, because this is like the narrator talking about something that happened in the past. It takes them 20 years to penetrate it. And then once they do, um, and they they determine that this sentinel, this object, has been 
on the moon for millions of years. And because of something about the way they can, they can like test the dust or something. And so he's like, this is, this was here before life on earth or while life on earth was even developing. Um, and so you get that, that sense of uh, cosmic awe, I think, and cosmic horror a little bit, uh, touch of it is in the story itself. I, 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 that was one thing I was, I was struck with how, um, there was an awe-inspiring moment as they stand together looking at this thing and they're realizing what it means. Um, and then he, they they're, they have sort of a hypothesis about what it means, but since we're presented with nothing else, I think we're safe to assume that they're right. And he uh, says that they destroy it, that humans decide to destroy this thing with the theory that it was left as a, as a device that would tell whoever left it that humanity has advanced to a stage where they could come to their own moon, find this thing, and destroy it. Um, and that would somehow send a signal. And we're left with the ominous sense that a signal has been sent and somebody else is coming to Earth. And he, uh, there is a little bit, there's like a touch of trepidation I detected in one of the lines where he says, the old are often insanely jealous of the young. So there's like a little bit of like a we don't really know how they're going to be when they get here, but they're coming. And that's where the story ends. Um, and we can see how this idea of this pyramid being left on the moon is millions of years old. You can see how that affects the movie and we get the obelisk. But just as a story, let's talk about it first. Short thing, only six pages long. Um, you can find it online for free. Uh, I do recommend checking it out if you're a fan of this movie. You might as well see where it all came from. Yeah, I mean, like, I was skeptical. I was like, oh, I don't know. Kubrick is, I, he always does, I'm pretty sure most of his movies are based on books. Which, yeah, I, you know, I think that's true. I was thinking, I think I literally mentioned this in our last episode, where I was talking about, like, you know, using existing material can be a strong choice. It's like, you know, someone like Kubrick clearly can impose his will on a story. And, and like, you know, you can tell it's his even though he's using other people's source material. He, you know, he changes things, does things. Because it's a short story on such a big sort of concept, I was skeptical a little bit. And I went in open-minded and really enjoyed it myself, especially for like short. Is this almost Flash? Yeah, I don't know what the word count is. I didn't I didn't look that up, but it is, it is yeah. It's borderline Flash, if not actually Flash. This story made me think like, man, I really should check out some more like Flash sci- science fiction because it, it's, it so fits. Like you just give me a concept and then explore it for a little while, and it's satisfying. And you know, this one in particular, I was like, "Wow, there's a lot of seeds that would that could grow to f- further the metaphor there, uh, that you could you know foster and grow into something that that Kubrick made." There was also like the sort of haunting thing of w- at what point does society and and humanity get to a dangerous level? I guess in the cosmos, maybe right. is, is what could be seen, or or at least a level at which you can comprehend and and engage with some sort of higher intelligence. And right. I, I just a fun concept to explore. And and then this idea of like activating this what was it like a tetrahedron or some sort of like unknowable shape or something that that like started reacting when they got close to it. It was like a beacon kind of thing where you're like here they come. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. I found that to be like a fun story. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it's dealing with a lot of big sci-fi topics, right, that scientists have been discussing. You'll hear people like Carl Sagan has weighed in on this. Neil deGrasse Titan will have opinions about, like, uh, you know, if is there a point where we are have become la- noisy enough and um, loud enough <laughs> in a cosmic sense 
to actually draw the attention of other civilizations who have somehow remained hidden from us, maybe by choice, maybe not. And at a certain point, do you do you then welcome their attention? And do we want that? Um, what does that look like? This is, you know, kind of the, the 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 fertile soil in which a lot of science fiction has been has been grown. And yeah, I mean, it's it, I was amazed at how there was a lot of actually fairly crunchy uh, sort of hard science in this. Uh, there was a, there was these discussions of uh, what the weight is like. It's like uh, he's like, oh, I weigh about 40 pounds on the moon, even with my space suit. And if I fell 600 feet, it would be equivalent to falling 100 feet. So it would be deadly and you don't want to get overconfident. And there's like all these things that like I, I couldn't check the math or whatever, but like I assume are at least fairly accurate. Um, and this is again, 1948. So this is a lot of like theoretical. What's it going to be like on the moon? We don't know. We've never been there. I also liked the sort of the interaction in the in the base where it's like, he wants to go explore this weird reflection that he sees and they're telling him not to yeah. and that he could get killed out there. And he's like this gung-ho astronaut kind of guy. He's like, I could get something named after myself or whatever, right? Yeah. Well, they're like, they're going to call, they're going to make fun of you and call it like the fool's ridge or something. Yeah. I, it, well, I also liked when he, when they first arrived, he's like, what sort of radiations, and, and this is very, I think, applicable to the time, right? This is the dawn of the nuclear bomb. He's saying, what sort of radiation have we stumbled on as humanity and what could I be subjecting myself to just standing here and um, you know that had to be a pretty new thought at the time so really cool sort of cutting edge uh, stuff at the time there is a lot about like this idea that Mars once had abundant plant life and like maybe even some other sorts of life on it that when went underneath the surface that you know had a bunch of this liquid water that then got absorbed like i don't know there's a lot of interesting stuff there i think a lot of that has been disproven um but again we hadn't been to the moon yet so like anything was like kind of still possible and on the table so it was up to these you know writers to just imagine um much like you know talk about you know princess of mars like we had no idea what was on mars could be whole civilizations out there so you know people's imaginations ran wild we see a little bit of that here, but still, I think um, an interesting story worth reading, um, and and especially with what it would go on to affect uh, almost twenty years later, right? Like uh, seventeen years later, when uh, when when the movie would get made. I, again, I enjoyed it. I recommend checking it out. I'll link it in the show notes. I'll put it down there if you want to click it and read it. It's a quick read. So, getting into the film here, I want to talk about like how it came about, right? Like what got Kubrick excited about this? And I was reading that he, you know, this is after Dr. Strangelove. So he's already done like okay. this military comedic uh, satire yeah. where he, you know, skewers. Did you military. say Strangelove was the last black and white film he made? I think it is. Yeah. yeah okay. Pretty sure it is. It's interesting. Yeah. Cause I mean, this is color and it's got a lot of color. So was... it's amazing to make that transition from black and white to color and have it already be this visually astounding well i mean like obviously there had been color back with like wizard of oz and things like that but like it was starting to become the norm at this yeah, point but you for know, a filmmaker right right like to show to show that he's like oh yeah i can fucking nail a color movie too don't you have any doubt about it <laughs> well and and honestly you're leading me perfectly into one of the major things here and that's just that tv was taking over all of people's entertainment time right and so the films had films had to figure out a way to be different and lure people back to the theaters. And this, if this, this sounds familiar to you, stop me. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's it's people want to stay home. They want to watch in their house. It's more convenient. It's easier. But then you get 
the way that you get people back in the seats is you give them these amazing adventures that they cannot experience in the same way in the home. And so Kubrick sought out a studio to make a sci-fi film. He obtained financing and distribution from MGM with the selling point that it would be marketed with their ultra widescreen Cinerama format. So again, you know, four by three, more squared off look of a TV at the time, or you can go sit in a theater with a bunch of people and see the Cinerama, like large format, 70 millimeter projection of a Stanley Kubrick film that you wouldn't see, you know, you can't get the same experience in the home. So that was the the idea behind it. After they started pre-production, Kubrick and science fiction author Arthur C. Clarke went to see a 70 millimeter film in a domed theater at New York World's Fair in 1965 called To the Moon and Beyond, which was created by Hollywood-based graphic film where a 23-year-old graphic artist, Douglas Trumbull, was working. Quote, They made a wide range of space movies, mostly for NASA and the Air Force, Trumbull recalls. Kubrick hired Graphic to do preliminary design studies for his and Clark's film, then titled Journey Beyond the Stars. So he was blown away, clearly, by this, like, domed projection that he saw of this, like, again, they're making things for NASA and the mm-hmm. Air Force and, and showing, proving that these things can be filmed realistically. Um, so he's recruiting people. They uh, brought in consultants from space agencies and industry to advise on things like spacecraft design, computer display, and control design. Kubrick hired Harry Lang, a spacecraft designer for, for rocket builder Werner von Braun, and spacecraft designer Frederick Ordway. Trumbull goes on to say that Harry Lang was a true spacecraft designer. He knew all about ballistics, orbital mechanics, rocket fuel, and rocket nozzles. So he brought to the movie a tremendous accuracy and verisimilitude to real spacecraft possibilities. So again, bringing all of these experts in to create the most realistic possible movie is like the the Kubrickian detail, right? Like he's making... they very well could have launched some of these things into space and like had it work based on the fact that they had these like people who knew what the fuck they were doing yeah creating these i was just yeah i mean i was amazed you get these wheel designs for rotating uh sort of um stations that would simulate some manner of gravity which is something we see time and again in science fiction um you 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 see a uh a docking sequence where the uh, ship coming to dock has to match its rotation with the uh, opening in which it's going to be flying into and I'm like that's just like what we see later in Interstellar <laughs> um, and it's such a cool sequence too and it's not explained you have to interpret that that's what's going on um, it's so cool and 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 again stuff the, the stuff with the gravity is like if you don't like there's a shorthand for understanding space and like uh, space physics that we all have now because we've grown up on this stuff that I just think was not super prevalent. Like a lot of what you'd seen was like Star Trek, you know, like it's, it's not super accurate when it comes to that kind of stuff, at least, or it's not, they're it, not having to deal with the gravity in the same way. And in, in Star Trek, you know, they're walking around normally cause they have some sort of artificial hand waved away, know, artificial gravity, gra- whatever. Gravity, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I want to move into sort of some of the performances and and the look at the film, because I talked about before, if Interstellar is the more emotional, this is the more surgical. And to talk about like, again, going for realism, I guarantee that they analyzed the way that astronauts were actually interacting with ground control and all these other in the way that they're not showing a ton of emotion because they're supposed to be calm in all of these situations. I was just thinking about that. Yeah, like uh, like astronauts are said to be this like 
cut above this like they're they're another breed entirely it seems like like they're yeah. they're so calm they're built different they have they're 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 like they're also like doctors like they they like a doctorate level knowledge right and they're and they're also elite athletes and they're this mm-hmm. peak performance and they are incredibly calm under pressure like they don't panic like there's all these things that go into that and i was seeing all of that into the character of dave especially yep. like i thought he was trying to embody that well and to get into like the, the the overall tone of the film too is like you might i feel like there's audiences who see this as very dull there's not a lot of emotion there's not a lot of like anxiety that people were expecting from a film a sci-fi film especially yeah. and i and just like the way that he's like so confidently saying like this he's literally giving people the template of like what they would be viewing when they would see like the mo- the moon landing and any other the missions that they would hear there it's very like like clipped their speech is very short and they're very like to the point and uh the way that they analyze situations like all of this is in this film yeah and and i just think that's incredible that like that they're going for that sort of realism to the point that the performance like there's so much of this movie that's so painstakingly like uh, meticulous it's so slow and and deliberate and um you know that goes all the way through to his performances that he was able to get out of his actors and the pacing of the film so a couple of fun things that i found behind the scenes that i definitely wanted to mention uh arthur c clark first became aware of the project when the following cable from R- roger Karras at mgm landed on his desk in 1963 now i don't know how to read sort of morse code or whatever they were sending back and <laughs> forth but this is i'm going to attempt to do it and I, i'll try to do my best for the the voice of the time stanley kubrick dr strangelove paths of glory etc interested in doing film on ets stop are you interested query thought you were recluse stop clark replied with the following cable frightfully interested in working with infant terrible stop contact my agent stop what makes Kubrick think I'm a recluse, Query? Wait, what's the infant thing? I don't understand. So, yeah, I had to look it up, too. So, basically, it was, you know, Stanley Kubrick reaching out, interested in doing a film. Clark's reply was, frightfully interested in working with infant terrible, which I looked up is like, I think it's like a French phrase, and it means a person whose unconventional or controversial behavior or ideas shock, embarrass, or annoy others. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So they started off immediately just like with the banter. They were right back and forth. He's calling him a recluse. He's calling him a child that he's like <laughs> shocking and embarrassing or annoying to others. So uh, interesting setup to them beginning to work together. Um, I feel like we had two very strong sort of y- used to getting their way sort of people in the room together. Yeah. Okay. So there's a few sections to get through here. I'm going to start with first one. A tribe of hominins is driven away from its watering hole by a rival tribe. The next day, they find an alien monolith has appeared in their midst. After their next hunt, they return to drive their rivals away with the newly discovered tool. Millions of years later, Dr. Hayward Floyd, chairman of the United States National Council of Aeronautics, travels to Clavius Base, a U.S. lunar outpost. During a stopover at Station 5, he meets Russian scientists who are concerned that Clavius seems to be unresponsive. He refuses to discuss rumors of an epidemic at the base. At Clavius, Hayward addresses a meeting of personnel to whom he stresses the need for secrecy with respect to their newest discovery. His mission is to investigate a recently found artifact, an identical monolith buried 4 million years earlier near the lunar crater Tycho. He and others ride in a moon bus to the monolith. As they examine the object, it emits a high-powered radio signal. Start of this movie, 
I immediately was like, oh, this is like one of the most famous movie openings of all time. One of the most iconic yeah. matching transitions ever. Yeah. yeah, I recorded it. I put it on our um, on our Instagram story, by the way, which will be probably gone by the time you hear this. But if you were following us already, then you would have seen it. Um, <laughs> very cool. And I was like, OK, I, I can tell that this is this is greatness. Right. Uh, you get this really big opening classical number, which hopefully we had as the intro to this episode of. If it worked out, um, <laughs> and so a uh, question for you: the, the the what we see, I've I've since learned that this is a weapon that the that uh, Moon Watcher, I think his name is, uh, is using, and then throws it into the air, and then I assume satellite ship of some kind, but people say that it's actually like some sort of nuclear. Um, weapon or something and it's like sort of showing a transition from the the early days of weapons to the modern uh idea of weapons where we are now potentially advancing into another echelon of cosmic sort of well let me tell you what i saw so i saw these uh you know uh early man right like when we're still mostly ape but not completely um we saw a battle over resources we saw sort of human nature in its most primal form play out and then the monolith arrives and is discovered and there's fear there's there's awe there's confusion and then they touch the monolith and then the next sequence we see is the one uh i guess i call it a hominin that's what you said um using the realizing it can use the bone to hit and i think this is implying that perhaps that spark of understanding could have been imparted by the monolith itself i definitely think that's a good read yeah i think that that's probably part of it yeah which is a part which is a theory that people to this day have some people hold some people at least have seriously considered the idea of ancient aliens right if you ever watched that like the meme dude i got the the meme in my head yeah the meme dude right ancient aliens long long ago somehow came down and imparted some sort of knowledge this goes all the way back to when there's just hominins right and like maybe even the spark of understanding of how to use tools so that creates an interesting egg and chicken scenario right like are they orchestrating are they creating humanity through this action are they sort of Prometheus, right? Like, like steal, is that Prometheus who steals the fire, mm-hmm. right? Are they giving us the fire? <laughs> and they're right. saying, here, go make a fire. <laughs> no, and I think that lines up with, with what I was saying. Like, human nature is to fight, right? There's always going to be a certain amount of violence or, like, like fighting over something. There's always going to be the weapon. So Well, to and, see and it, I think it's, I mean, it is a weapon, but it's also a tool, I think it's it's sure. notable that like it, yeah. yeah the first use of a tool is as a weapon I think is is what's said here and I think that is probably plausible right is a, a way to hunt, um, but he, yeah when he throws it in the air, it uh, it transitions into a ship and my thought immediately was or a ship or a satellite or something who knows what um, my thought was it's a tool into a tool that's what I saw it as whether or not it's a weapon I don't know it's definitely one tool trans like transitioning into another more. Uh, a sort of elaborate and uh, advanced tool, but yet a still a tool made by humanity and flung into the sky. <laughs> yeah. So the idea of it being a weapon, I read in my research, but every time I've seen this film, I've felt the same way as you. Yeah. It's a tool, right? And the advancement of tools eventually become little inventions together to create space travel and things Which like that. Which is drawing a clear line between if the monolith gave that that spark of knowledge, that bone leads to this spaceship. 
But I would say that like it, the tool weapon thing is two sides of the same coin, right? Like either way, it's like it, it can be interpreted either way. It's this, it means the same thing. And whether or not it's given deliberately, like a um, like some sort of uh, informational uh, download, or <laughs> with some is some sort of knowledge imparted, or is it just the sort of uh, reality bending nature of this monolith? Does it does it awaken something in the mind of these creatures? as they try and grasp what's happening, does that, is that, so it's like, where is it coming from? Is it coming from within in response to external, external stimulus, or is it legit, literally knowledge being sent? And I don't think we know, and it's open to interpretation, but I think it's really cool. To make a fun uh, connection here, in the way that Kubrick created this sci-fi film that would pave the way for all these other sci-fi films, maybe the monolith is, is like showing what can be so that you know it can be done, you know that there's some other technology that you don't understand out there that's so, you know, so advanced that you can strive for something to strive for. Mm. I think there is some theories about like the Neanderthals versus like early humans and like early humans developed the use of tools, uh, at least I don't think exclusively, but more quickly. And because of that advancement, we're able to wipe out the Neanderthals or mostly um, although I've also heard that maybe they weren't completely wiped out. I don't know. Well, then the aliens also like helped us build the pyramids. Oh, yeah. Too, <laughs> right? like, <it's> like... <laughs> so, yeah, moving into this next part of the description there, we, we get this person who's like sort of commuting to the, yeah. to the moon. Such a cool sequence, right? And and I, that set that you were talking about is so silent and, and we're just watching. And I think this is just like him flexing. Like, I'm going to make an accurate space film and I'm going to show you what that would look like. And it's going to be a future that is plausible and within reach and uh, not not so grandiose as to be beyond belief, but actually uh, recognizably human and recognizably our society. Right. Like I didn't know if like because I think it's Pan American <laughs> is the company. And I was like, was there like actual product placement in this movie? I don't know. Oh, yeah, for sure. You uh, There was a Hilton sign. There was a Pan Am. There's tons of IBM. So that's where you're getting the funding from, I guess. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I mean, some of it probably. I mean, it's probably expensive ass movie. So you probably needed it. Um, extremely expensive. Yeah. I mean, it went four years and I think it cost something between between like 10 and 16 million at the time. But the funny thing is, as, as someone who is so like skeptical of capitalism and often antagonistic towards it and, um, you know, to put it mildly, um, to see capitalism so on display here, it actually imparts a sense of um, uh, of dystopia to me. I didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's like the, the idea that they're you know that you're 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 traveling on a Pan American to the space station, and we're going to you know a Hilton on the moon. Like that's kind of gross. And and I wonder if it probably still was at the time, but maybe I don't know if that attitude is is has changed so much over time. I don't know. Yeah. Why is my Kubrickian crazy uh, film? Also, at the same time, weirdly corporate at the beginning and like very businessmen in a suit on, a, on, you know, I can't be home for I can't be home for my kid's birthday. And like that, you know, I was like weird. But it's but I think for the time it was what was the normal. And he was trying to make the future seem like it's more in the now, you know, like I, I can't take it credit for this. I heard somebody in a video talk about this, but this idea of he's not even looking out the window, right? He's asleep and he's on his way to the moon. Like that's that's how normal all of this is. Right. It doesn't matter. He's like, oh, I've done this a million times. Yeah. Although he does linger at the toilet a lot to like look at the sign to learn how to go to the bathroom in space. Well, it had like 10, 10 paragraphs of description of what you had to do. So 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, just so cool. And then the the, the, the uh, little shoes that say like grip grip sleeves or something that the stewardess is wearing. And I assume it's kind of like Velcro is my guess. I think so. Yeah, um, I think you're right. Just so many cool little details and these curved set, uh, sets and these padded walls. So much detail went into the thought of how these how these scenes would look. Right. Um it's just really cool. And like when you appreciate the filmmaking that's going on, to me, I that's enough. Like in the world building, we're learning so much about what this version of the future looks like. Um, and there's also this now this interesting thing. So um, I meant to say this at the start of the episode. Sorry. My, so, OK, I was on a panel at the Nebula Convention this last weekend uh, where I talked about the challenges of writing when you have ADHD because I have that. And uh, I thought the panel went really great, got a lot of good responses. Um, one of the things about ADHD is your brain goes in all these weird places, right? So I'm realizing that's happening as I'm bringing this up, which made me laugh. Um, but where my brain just went is that there's another convention coming up later this year called Worldcon, which we've talked about. This where they award the Hugo Awards. And at that convention, there is, I was reading through the panels, there's a panel about science fiction, these certain science fiction films that have been made where we are now in our present past the point of the quote unquote future of those movies. And the panel is discussing what the, what the perception of the future that is now our past, what we can learn about how we view ourselves and how we viewed ourselves in the past versus even how we view ourselves now, what were people saying and what were people predicting into our future? And so that's, I was also kind of looking at this movie in that way, like what, it was interesting to see what Kubrick and, and Clark thought about the future of humanity and where we would be in, you know, the year 2001, which I, you know, I, I guess this movie is, it doesn't say that, but it's in the title. So I assume it is. Um, we do get one reference to something being made in like 1996 or something. So we know we're in yeah. that kind of time frame. Hal, I think it was 97. Yeah. I just think it's cool. I don't know. That's a huge topic. It's a topic for a panel to discuss, but it's you also just reminded me of the fact that like, I, I guess I've never thought about this, but maybe s sort of the reason why this podcast can be scattered at times is because we're both <laughs> neurodivergent ADHD people. Yeah, uh, I think that is probably accurate. And uh, one of the things I talked about on my panel was the nature of flow states and how that is like the way I combat ADHD is by trying to achieve flow state. And I've realized that whenever I'm recording this podcast, I'm in one. So yeah. <laughs> I'm in one now. So anyway, uh, let's continue. <laughs> yeah. So we get this uh, discussion of a, an epidemic, which I thought was wild because it's like to, just to be like, this is our cover story. There's an epidemic is pretty fucking terrifying when you think about enclosed bases. And it's a cover story. We, yeah. Which like that uh, an epidemic in space on a lunar base is already an interesting sci-fi premise. <laughs> right. And that's what he teases out. Like when you first see this movie, you don't know what it's about. You're like, holy shit, is there an epidemic in this well, movie? Well, since the horror, man, I'm telling you. So, and then, and then you get, there's a mysterious, they weren't able to land. No one's responding. So uh, the mystery of space is scary, right? And then we arrive there. We learn that there's something's been discovered. That's scary. What is it? We don't know. The way that they're all sort of, sort of uh, ho-hum about it is notable. And then they, they, when they're all walking down into that dig site, the music <laughs> is so good. It's so powerful at evoking just like dread. Like I, I, I felt like my, my heart was in my throat and I didn't know why, but partly it's just the music, but also this circumstance where can you imagine like it's hard. I mean, this movie asks you to, I guess, but like imagine walking up to something 
it's a monolith. <laughs> Something that is millions of years old, left by an alien civilization for unknown reasons, emitting unknown forces. Like it's it's got some sort of crazy magnetic field that they've detected, but who knows what else is going on with this thing. And now you're walking up to it. Like that would be one of the scariest moments it, and thrilling and, and just like awe-inspiring and, and that's all going on. But at the same time, they're being kind of ho-hum about it, especially as evidence when they turn around and go, let's get a picture with the monolith. And they all start gathering in front of it. <laughs> they're very much like like military. Like yeah. That's their, that's their procedure. And so they're all like very brave about everything. Yeah. They're doing it for, you know, mankind. And they're, you know, so all of it is approached in that, yeah. in that, sort of perspective but it's not quite like hey let's get a selfie with this thing but it felt a little bit like that <laughs> it's basically like that um notably no there's no score in this film it's just classic pieces that that kubrick hand selected well i wasn't sure because like so so you're saying this is an existing piece all these like voices like rising like oh that was very dramatic and like um pulse pounding from what i understand there was a score that was being developed because this the studio wanted it and Kubrick was against it from the start and then once they got about halfway Kubrick was like look I'm not using the score I'm going to use these classical pieces that I've selected because they fit wow. and I mean it's it's incredible to listen to and like I said before it's like an opera it's so it's this this movie is so connected to music as well and in the pacing and then the, the like the plotting nature of it and the way that it like interacts with the music and everything it's and sound in general like uh one of the major things was up to this point, I don't think that, like from what I could understand, everyone was in awe of it because it realistically depicted the sounds that in space. Like you're not hearing ships traveling. Really quiet. Space would be if incredibly you're hearing quiet. Anything, yeah. As an astronaut, if you're hearing anything, you're hearing yourself breathing yep. and you're hearing your equipment. Yep. Like near in your suit. That's what we heard, and that's extremely realistic. And also claustrophobic. It makes me feel claustrophobic. Yeah, it builds up the tension. That. It builds up. You know, it's it's just a great great devices that he's using here to represent realistic space yeah. exploration. Well, and there's like an uh, there's an unsettling nature to a lot of the sounds too, where it's like mm-hmm. uh, my wife mentioned because she's in the other room and she could hear it. <laughs> right. Like this movie sounds weird from the other room. It's like what? Like there's like weird sounds, there's beeping, there's like and, and it's really loud and the music is is so uh, out of nowhere and then it rises and falls. Um yeah, really cool. But one thing I wanted to say about the classical music, the choice to use it is it also uh, references the history of music for humanity, right? And the emotion that classical music can uh, evoke in people is often highly abstract um, and uh, maybe uh, interpretive, right? And so by using that kind of music on these scenes, he is evoking that, uh, that, that sense of like ineffable majesty to what you're seeing, like a, like a, a quality that you can't put into words. Um, and I think it is smart to do that. It feels ageless, right? Yeah, it feels ageless. Yeah, but very human. We always talk about how um, life imitates art. And uh, in this way, I think Kubrick, for a lot of these, a lot of the ways that, you know, Star Trek informed cell phones and all these other things that people want to create once they see, um, a lot of things pop up in this film that, that continue to be like referenced and used and things like that. But one of the major things that I was reading was like this uh, this connection to music and the way that like astronauts after this film, I guess, have been made to listen to classical music. Like it's uh, some sort of connection has been made yeah. there. So like they wake up to classical music. And I, I've I know like 
Montessori schools and things like that will have classic music playing in the hallways, just being like that far ahead of the curve and (laughs) maybe even setting some of the trends in that way of like this sort of music being important, something more primal than just you like the music or it's something for a film. It's like there's something something that it speaks to that we can't describe. There was this one shot where the ship is coming down from the station to land on the moon and it comes in and we see the doors open and it's lowering down and I can tell it's a model, but then there's all these little people moving on the sides and like you can tell they're real people. And on one on the left side, they're watching three screens and one of the screens is showing what we're seeing happen in the center, which is the spaceship coming down through the and I was I was blown away because I know, again, this is not CGI. Like, how are they doing this? And I, I, can't, I can't even imagine there. But like, I've seen enough corridor crew where they break down these shots that I know there are there's trickery afoot. Um, so mm-hmm. I'd love to hear them break down like this scene because I'm like, how did they even do this? I don't know. I, I guarantee there's so much out there. And this is another thing I wanted to ask people to do. Like, if you're interested in what we're talking about, we're scratching the surface, people. Yeah. I promise you. Look up. There's there's video after video after video, article after article, people analyzing it to to almost no end. It's one of the most analyzed films out there. I bet. Um, there's a couple that I wanted to shout out. There was a filmmaker IQ video called The History and Science of the Slit Scan Effect, which like gave me a really good, it's like 15 minutes. So when we get to the slit scan technology, which is how they did the sort of going through the, uh, whatever you want to call that space time oh, okay, yeah. kind of thing. The way that they achieved that was very practically done. And, and like, I, I'm not going to be able to do it tons of justice. So check that out. It's called the history and science of the slit scan effect used in Stanley Kubrick's 2001, a space odyssey. Okay. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. And then the, another one that I think just in terms of putting this film into, into context for people, there's one, uh, Warner brothers Enter- entertainment. It's sort of a, a retrospective kind of thing looking back at the film and it's a bunch of filmmakers i'm sure it's included with blu-rays and things like that it's called 2001 a space odyssey on the shoulders of kubrick the legend of 2001 wow and it really does a great job of like describing what it, what this film means and, and the painstaking efforts that were taken and things like that yeah well one last note i had is that i i, I definitely noticed that this guy touches the monolith in the same way that the uh, apes did, the hominins did in the early sequence of the film. Same thing, put his hand on it. Um, And I think it could just be a mirroring. It could, maybe that's what activates it. Um, It seems like they're taking pictures of it, but they'd already been taking so many pictures of it. Unclear to me what causes it. I know you said that you you read somewhere that someone interpreted it to be the sun touching the monolith is what causes this to go off. But that doesn't really hold water to me because like that could like the sun's hit it a bunch of times. Right. Like something sets it off. I think it might be the touch. But like, is he the first person to touch it? Someone else probably has. So I don't know. But something sets it off and it sets off the signal. Well, I think it's this the 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 person was more in the description of this and it was taking some liberties. I felt so I cut it out. But I think it's the combination of something touching it and then the alignment of like the planets or stars okay. and the sun hitting it in a yeah. certain angle. We do see a lot of alignment altogether. shots with like planets yeah. and stuff where it may, implying that that is somehow important. There is, I mean, there's the important shot when they're touching it where it like looks up at the sky and the sun is just cresting over the monolith. That yeah. monolith view is really cool. That's why I think somebody drew importance from the sun specifically activating it. But I, I don't think that that's necessarily true. You know, good interpretation, but not, not mine. It almost seemed to me like they were disrespecting it in the taking the picture. And it was like, all right, if you're not going to take me serious, I'm about to blast your brains with a crazy radio signal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that uh, within the metaverse of this story, <laughs> that is part of it. 
Okay, so 18 months later, the American spacecraft Discovery 1 is bound for Jupiter, with mission pilots and scientists Dr. David Dave Bowman and Dr. Frank Poole on board, along with three other scientists in suspended animation. Most of Discovery's operations are controlled by HAL, a HAL 9000 computer with a human personality. When HAL reports the imminent failure of an antenna control device, Dave retrieves it in an ex- in an extravehicular activity, EVA pod, but finds nothing wrong. Hal suggests reinstalling the device and letting it fail so the problem can be verified. Mission Control advises the astronauts that the results from their twin 9000 computer indicate that Hal is in error about the reporting, but Hal blames it on human error. Concerned about Hal's behavior, Dave and Frank enter an EVA pod so they can talk without Hal overhearing and agree to disconnect Hal if he's proven wrong. Hal follows their conversation by lip reading. Yeah. Uh, okay. So the 18 month jump I thought was, was super unexpected. I didn't know that was going to happen. I thought we, I thought this guy was like going to go to the ship. Cause I knew I, okay. So I had seen some like scenes referenced in other things, right? Like I, people, you see mon- of course, yeah. montages of like famous movies will show scenes. Like I've seen some stuff from this movie. So I know that Hal is a thing. I've heard Hal's voice before. I know that the guy in this pod with the lights on his face, like that's an iconic moment that I've One seen of the before. most iconic shots ever. Yeah. Incredible looking too, to this day. And uh, yeah, so notable, like I remember it. But I figured this guy was going to somehow lead to that, right? Like uh, directly. Instead, there's <laughs> 18 months later, boom. Um, so that, that caught me off guard. All of a sudden we're on a ship that's going to Jupiter. And again, like I'm going to, I'm going to reference something that came much later, but like, I was amazed at how much this ship looked just like the ship from the event horizon movie, which is to me, an underrated classic film, uh, of cosmic horror. Like, I love that movie. It's not perfect. It's got a lot of problems, but it's got such a cool idea that, that I absolutely love it. And don't be surprised if I one day write a book that is like at least some way influenced by that movie, because I love, I love some of the premise stuff around that. Well, so what you're saying is also in some way influenced by this story. Right. And that's what I'm getting yeah. back to. Like clearly event horizon influenced by this movie. Cause the, the, the design of the ship is so similar with this long branch in between. And you got like a, a circle in the front and like the squarish off back. And it looks very, very similar. Well, I mean, I, they consulted experts, right? Yeah. So they're they're drawing from the people who know what the fuck they're talking about. Yeah. And I actually had another section I want to read that I thought you would you would appreciate. Okay. Uh, astronomer Carl Sagan wrote in his book The Cosmic Connection that Clark and Kubrick had asked him how best to depict extraterrestrial intelligence, while acknowledging Kubrick's desire to use actors to portray humanoid aliens for convenience sake. Sagan argued that alien life forms were unlikely to bear any resemblance to terrestrial life and that to do so would introduce at least an element of falseness to the film. Sagan proposed the film should simply suggest extraterrestrial superintelligence rather than depict it, and uh, he attended the premiere and was pleased to see that he had been of some help. Yeah, that is so well done, right? Like, it's two different kinds of stories. When uh, aliens resemble us, usually the more they resemble us, the more they are metaphors for some aspect of humanity. Or, or something like that, right? Like, and, and the more they are unknowable and different, um, I think they start to become more of a concept of, to me, uh, uh, or a manifestation of that um, cosmic perspective, mm-hmm. right? Made manifest. Um, and there is scientific thought 
and theory behind it. But yeah, specifically, like Carl said, to not show them is to not introduce doubt, right? right. Like so to leave it more unknown, yeah. but still have the presence there. You're still you're kind of being more scientifically accurate, right? Because you're not introducing something where you've made a decision, right? You're instead the only decision that's made. I mean, there are some, but like few. And it feels like they're trying to get get away with as few as possible. Um, so I love that. Um, and, and I have a story called They Come From the Void. And in that story, I have these like orbs of light that are alien intelligences that are very, very old. And again, are sort of unknowable in a way. Um, so I, I like that. And that's again, me. I was trying to play with the cosmic perspective and the hor- inherent horror to that. Um, and so I love that stuff. It's, it's speaking to me, man. So again, I, w- I was totally feeling that. And and getting back to like a, a another more realistic look, instead of having like a robot walking around, our robot is a computer built into the wall uh, and like not having a body makes it way more <laughs> frightening in, in a sense. Like what, what were your thoughts on Hal? I loved Hal. So uh, out, of the, out of the blue almost, we get this whole like mini story this plot line that plays out that's all about artificial intelligence which i am incredibly fascinated by i have another story that is like out right now for purchase and will later be coming out for free in reckoning it's all about an artificial intelligence like that's the entire story is written from the point of view of an artificial intelligence so i think about i've thought about this a lot i think about it a lot and i loved hal um i thought hal was going to be way more villainous from the way i've seen him it portrayed in uh in media in references to it, right? But I was I wasn't sure what was going on with Hal. Hal's very very mysterious. Um, I thought it was notable that Hal's shape, even in the wall, mimics that of the monolith. It's the same black rectangle, except for it has this red eye and this sort of fisheye lens perspective of the world. Um, and the idea that is sort of in, in, an un, infallible machine yet s- seems to be malfunctioning. And why? And uh, I, I think that's kind of interpretive too, because I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, I'll, I'll hold off on that thought until we talk more about what happens. But like, yeah, I mean, I think I think Hal is incredibly interesting. I love that he's being interviewed, um, and I could totally see this happening as we start to have these like nascent intelligences and and, and personalities. And it's almost like a fun game. Hey, let's interview the AI. Uh, even as we don't quite understand how actually sentient it may or may not be, because we don't still understand what sentience even is. And I love there was a line where the guy interviewing Dave says, um, I thought when I was interviewing Hal, I detected a sense of pride. And does it feel real emotions? And and, and Dave's answer is essentially, um, it appears to, but does it actually feel emotions? impossible to say and i love that because is a programmed intelligence displaying emotion because of its programming at what point if it's feigning that because of programming (laughs) is it indistinguishable from a quote-unquote real emotion like are we it's not possible to prove are we as humans just feigning emotion because of chemicals in our brains and not quote unquote really feeling them like that's such a biological perspective. Is it just the fact that our machinery is made out of meat instead of out of um, you know electronics and, and and bites? Like is is that what makes it real? 
Well, and this becomes more fascinating at the end too, yeah. with what happens with Hal, obviously, because like there's a, a, you could say that he's feigning emotion still, or you could say that there's true emotion yeah. being shown at the end. Yeah. Like who's to say? Well, let me back up to the sequence we we're actually in. Um, I I was absolutely blown away with the shadow boxing, whatever you want to call it, jogging. He's he's going around the entire fucking thing, and it's all in a single unbroken shot. And I was like, I'm just imagining the rig that had to have been built to make this possible. Is look at some of the videos that I was just mentioning. I pro- you see it. It's insane. It's so cool. And just to be like on that set and running, and then so they have the like locked camera where it looks like he's going around, and then they actually follow him so you can see what he would see in this this curved thing. And there's no doubt in your mind that what you're seeing is real. Yeah, and what's amazing too is like these actors like have to hit their marks because they'll get hurt if they don't. Oh yeah, I was like, it has to stop, right? It gets rotating, and then when he comes to this mark, the thing has to stop rotating for him to not then start to fall. So I was I was amazed at like exactly I was like they had to time that perfectly, and there's some danger to that. It's amazing stuff. Like, and you know that Kubrick didn't just shoot it one time because he's Kubrick. You know, he shot it like a thousand times. Oh, I'm sure. I think it's clear there's maybe some ulterior motives going on. Uh, there's like a malfunction that happens. He goes out. The spacewalk is amazing. Very realistic. Well, in this lead, I, I, you have to have some details in here about the conspiracy theories surrounding Kubrick did the moon landing and like. I honestly didn't even want to engage with okay. it. But yes, there, it's definitely But out like there. that had to have happened as people watched this movie come out. They know he was developing it at the same time. They're like, oh, the U.S. government yeah. would have wanted him to like use some of his 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 effects to like fake this shit. And my thing is like, you can tell like you I can watch it and tell it's not real. Like, you know what I mean? Like I could I could see how people were maybe fooled back in the day. But like today you can look at the footage of this movie and see a clear difference in this and what we actually see in, in, in the film of the of the real moon. Plus, even if Kubrick was faking it, there's no way he would he would allow for like that low quality. It would look better in, in a sense, <laughs> right? Even if he was faking it, he wouldn't allow his pride yeah. wouldn't allow. Of course, him it's to. all bullshit. But like, I just think it's funny to to denote how that's like a note of how important this movie is, right? Right. Like in the context of when it came out, 100%. and how believable it was when people looked at this and were like, "Holy shit." Yeah, so one other thing I want to say about Hal is I love that this quickly establishes the rules of this intelligence, right? Like, we see that it has has perspective that is at least somewhat limited to what it can see in here as he, as he's mm-hmm. showing it these, these uh, drawings he's done, um, and we see its perspective. We understand that it has this certain level of emotion, but there's some um, ambiguity as to, like, how authentic it is. Uh, and we see that there's an implication of maybe it has some pride. So I love that it introduces like a little bit of personality beyond just what is un- like generally understood. We get the implication that maybe there's something a little more going on, um, and that's inherently creepy. And the idea of like man versus AI, and one trying to get the better of the other, and one is sort of an like incredibly ultra intelligent uh, version, and then man's trying to find a way to to outsmart it. Uh, that's always going to be engaging storytelling. And so many movies have been made off of this. Yeah. And of course they had the playing chess against Hal. Yeah. they had to have that man against machine, like losing handily. Um, yeah. Ultimately what ends up happening is like the AI can only pro like only process and understand what it could p- perceive, what it could possibly think could happen. So the only way to outsmart it or to beat it in any way is to, is to do something imperceptible, something that's not thought possible. 
uh, and and like I guess you can find a loophole in, in the system in that way. But uh, first, I want to talk about the, the sort of perceived animosity. But did he? Maybe not. Yeah, we'll talk about it in a second. But uh, there's like a perceived animosity that I was feeling where, it, and I think it has something to do with like the short. Uh, to the point nature of the of the astronaut speaking to Hal yeah. and then Hal also responding back and the way that like we get oh my god and the POV shots the POV shots of Hal were so instrumental in like in like making it creepy understanding like what he could see and the ways he could see it like you said when he showed him the drawing but uh, they're almost like they when they look at him they almost look at him with disgust and it's probably more of just like their serious face that they're dealing with and processing and speaking but like they look at it with disdain sometimes and i'm like do they hate this thing being viewed as a tool right and, we, and i think it's very notable that we see him just fiddling with his bed a little bit and he's just like telling how to do all these things for him and how's just doing right. it like he's a servant to humanity yep and yeah, how do you treat your Roomba at home? Because exactly. that's going to inform how you treat your, your AI. Yeah, the one I don't want to say because she, she's listening. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> In the room. Um, the one from Amazon. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it, it, and like, I have more theories about this, but like, it, I think that is trying to say something about possibly the, the, the monolith itself and the way it might view humanity and you know, interactions between different sorts of intelligences, right? I think there's a reason we're using that and we're including that in this story that otherwise seems like, why is this AI involved? Like, it almost seems like a distraction. It's notable that it's segmented, right? The film is segmented into four different parts and they do feel almost separate, but then they obviously have the connecting tissue that makes them all relevant together. There's one line, which we'll get to later, that I'm going to tell you, like, completely recontextualizes everything that happens with Al for me. Yeah. Well, and so, and you got to think about the fact that like Hal seemingly is in, in no way connected to the monolith. So there's almost two antagonists or, or sort of other forces that the, that humanity is, is contending with, right? So it's like this AI thing. And then also this other intelligence that's like beyond them. And it's like, is there a commentary being made about like humanity potentially not being able to perceive this other entity, but them creating something that might be able to perceive that entity in some way or something like that. Humanity itself, our reach may be limited in our physical forms, but the things we create might not have the limitations that we currently have. We can create a machine that can self-repair and potentially go on and on and on. And you, you could see a situation where we could craft an AI to quote unquote man a ship where that AI is not limited by the fact that it's going to take a thousand years to get somewhere. That's that's right. not a big deal for an AI. And we've right. created it. So it is an extension of self in that sense. And it's a, cre- it's a creation of humanity. Yet the thing that arrives wherever it's going is not a human. It is something we've right. created, right? It's a tool. It's a, to- it's, a, it's a tool we've flung into space. Yeah. Or a weapon. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to read this next part. While Frank is on a spacewalk attempting to replace the antenna unit, Hal takes control of his pod, setting him adrift. Dave takes another pod to rescue Frank. While he is outside, Hal turns off the life support functions of all three other crew members in suspended animation, killing them. When Dave returns to the ship with Frank's body, Hal refuses to let him in, stating that the astronaut's plan to deactivate him jeopardizes the mission. Dave opens the ship's emergency airlock manually, enters the ship, and proceeds to Hal's processor core, where he begins disconnecting Hal's circuitry, despite being begged not to. 
When disconnection is complete, a pre-recorded video by Haywood plays, revealing that the mission's objective is to investigate the radio signal sent from the monolith to Jupiter. So much to talk about, but I do want to first off acknowledge some incredible sequences, the floating in space. Uh, you know, again, without CGI, you have this guy like twisting and turning in ways that seem extremely difficult. You see stars behind, the, you know, these the, these spacewalks. Um, the sh- the, sh- the way the ships approach each other, like I'm like, okay, this is a model, but this is clearly a person. Again, I don't know how this stuff was done, but I'm sure trickery is afoot. Looks incredible. Um, I like that there was a color language going on to tell us like who's who. Like Dave has the red suit, the other guy has the- has that yellow suit. Um, we see the tablets at one point we were talking about before. Like there's so many things that were predicted with such incredible accuracy. Camera phones, or not camera phones, but like a basically FaceTime communications. It did seem that like they were aware of the time delay that would be in effect here. So we didn't see live conversations with people back on earth, which I thought was good. It seemed that the the interview was like pre-recorded um, that they were watching later. So there's just a lot of great little details, scientifically accurate. I guess I didn't know how accurate this movie was going to be. I didn't know how well it would stand up over, over time, but I was amazed with the level of accuracy. So how like, hits this guy with the ship right and he's like floating well, in space unclear. i didn't know what happened to him he goes flying off and i was like it's, ha- it's not shown directly but but the the pod starts moving on its own like it's just sitting there and then it starts moving but then this pod also goes like spinning off right like it, like i like maybe it got hit i thought the implication was maybe it got hit by an asteroid because we saw the asteroids flying through the air or through the air through space at one point um I don't know. I, I I got the implication of how did it because it zooms in on how and it makes a noise and I was like, okay, how did this? But how and why? I wasn't clear. Right. Yeah, I assumed that it had something to do with the uh, that he flew the ship like sort of into him and knocked him off or something like that. Or yeah, maybe turned it in a way. Yeah. I was in one of these interviews that I, met, I referenced. There was one where somebody was talking about the outside of the ships. Another that they had like textured them with sort of like gears and things that you see on the outside that becomes the language of ships in outer space yeah. going forward. And and that and you like look at it and you're like, oh yeah, like it seems like there's something going on there that I don't know what the, how that works, but that's functioning. Like there's something there that that's helping this this ship fly through space. Like all these little textures and like radars and gadgets and gizmos on there. Amazing. Dave has to go out and retrieve Frank, and it's this really tense scene where he goes out. She's getting, he goes straight out there. He goes, retrieves him, brings him yeah. back. And that's when Hal So says, calm when he goes to the pod. Yeah. Like he's like, uh, all right, my uh, my only other companion other than Hal just got, is, is hurtling through space. Going to just calmly walk down to the pod, tell Hal to open the door, my normal voice. No, no like sense of urgency. I do think it is a good juxtaposition for the way that he reacts eventually to some of the other things that happen too. Right? Yeah, no, no. I mean, he's so calm in this moment to, 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 to where when we see what he goes through, how, in, how just like unbelievably uh, emotive it is by comparison. Right. Well, this is something he's trained for and something he's ready for in a sense, right? Like something dramatic that would get your heart rate up, of course, but it's something that he's like, ready to experience if he needs to what he goes through later is not yeah uh so he brings him back and then the famous line open the pod bay doors how yeah how's like i'm afraid i can't do that yeah it's haunting it's like every nightmare that anyone who worries about ai is <laughs> afraid to hear one day there's so many ways that we give away our freedoms or will be giving away our freedoms to automation 
that uh, this kind of stuff is going to it's going to become a reality, <laughs> maybe potentially. Yeah. I mean, but that's only on one level. So so, yeah, on the surface level, Hal has identified the importance of this mission, committed a mistake. And now that he's being threatened with being deactivated in order to preserve the integrity of this and the importance of this mission has decided to eliminate the other two guys. But what doesn't make sense is why does he eliminate the scientists? I would pose that all of it was planned and he never made a mistake. That's what I was going to say. That's why that doesn't ultimately hold up to me. And ultimately what holds up to me is, is how actually is fairly infallible and everything that occurs is orchestrated by Hal in a way. Yeah. And, uh, the, the, he orchestrated them going out on these spacewalks so that he could eventually kill one of them and they would go to retrieve the other. And then he would have control of the ship potentially. Um, but it's crazy to think like the, the sort of, but why it it was, so Hal controls it, but, but, but is someone behind it or, is how making the determination to do this itself or is is how being influenced by alien intelligence well you could say maybe that last one but i think it's more the second one i think that how makes a very specific point that humanity is what's fallible in all of these situations everything that happens is always humanity's fault so so is how trying to us- usurps humanity preserve the mission and make sure that like it's f- carried out due to the way that he was programmed and what he wanted, and he wants to get rid of the human error. Okay, I can see that. Like, he wants... And I like that line about human error. It's always human error. Um, That does uh, give a lot of credence to what you're saying. You could also see it, though, that the monolith, one of the only things we've seen it do is communicate information via a signal. So you could interpret that as an ability to communicate with Hal. And if you open the door to that, maybe Hal has actually been in communication in some way with a monolith, yeah. then anything's open. Like this could. I do think that that is a read. Yeah, this could be a manipulation of the monolith to get this guy and this guy alone to be the one who eventually makes this sort of journey we see occur. I don't know. I think I think multiple readings are on the table. I'm okay with that ambiguity. I think it's interesting. I think it's it's. It, it's fascinating to discuss. It's interesting to watch the movie from different ways and, and, and interpreting it different ways. I do think the surface level, Hal made a mistake, doesn't end up holding up because there are too many questions unanswered. If Hal made a mistake and is only wanting to preserve the mission, why does Hal kill the scientists? And I think that has to be what you're saying. That, yes, maybe Hal made a mistake or maybe didn't, but regardless, Hal is trying to take control to eliminate the possibility of error because Hal recognizes how important the mission is. Also, we I, I don't know about you, but I got an intermission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. <laughs> like, like it was like a minute long too, just an intermission. We got some music. There's a famous story about the intermission sort of not being where it was originally. And I guess the like Kubrick wasn't fully aware of when the the intermission was being placed and the sort of overture as, as you're coming into the theater. There's a lot of things like around like the way that this has been presented and i guess like fairly recently in japan they did a screening that tried to replicate exactly how the projection and the 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 uh music would bring you in and you would sit down and then the music that would play in the in the intermission and then the outro and everything like perfectly as kubrick intended when he when he 
first showed the movie. Um, interesting to think about, but yeah, I, I, I what appreciate happened to the people who saw that. Did they all get transported to another place in the universe? I assume. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I appreciate a good intermission. I'm not gonna yeah. lie. There's something very bring them back, man. I've talked about this before. Like, I... it's awesome. It's the best, and it it promotes conversation. Yeah, give you a chance to walk a... out, get a snack, go to the bathroom, maybe have a brief moment where you can talk with your friends who came to the movie with you about, hey, how are you enjoying it? You know, what do you think's happening? Right. It's the putting down of the book too, right? Like yeah. when you read a book, you get a chance to put it down, process, walk away. why people away. like TV shows. They can take breaks between episodes. <laughs> it, it's fun, especially for a longer film. I appreciate it. I like it. And I've been to a few road shows where they do like, like I went to uh, the Hateful Eight. Me too. I also did Hateful Eight. Yep. And they had the intermission. It was so much fun. Everyone talked in the crowd when you're out there. Like that, that I, I love that environment. Sort of That's a cool. film festival vibe. Yeah, very cool. Another horror element we got to talk about. The idea of being put in a stasis... And they were put in stasis before they were even on the ship and then just being executed while you're in this like state of, of almost like sleep. Like that is horrifying in and of itself. So, again, there are elements of horror throughout this movie, this intelligence of how uncaring and it says, like, you know, at one point this this conversation serves no more purpose and then it just stops. <laughs> yep. Um, well, and I love that being flipped back on its head, right? So this lead, this whole Hal conversation leads us he's to... He's begging to be let back in. Right. And then, yeah. And then Dave won't respond to him. And he's like, Dave, please. And and so, like, you know, that that flip is so awesome. But I did love that the, the lines that get repeated over and over again of, like, I can feel my mind breaking or my mind yes. shutting down. Did he really? Did he really? Or is he just appealing to emotion? Is 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 it is it a cold AI manipulating and in trying to manipulate or is it an emotional AI genuinely showing emotion or is it a super cold AI deliberately trying to pretend that it's showing emotion <laughs> knowing that it won't be believed and playing like 5D chess I mean right they showed a game of chess right like or you know whatever it's not just chess itself is very complex um, is it just playing chess in a way of like multiple moves ahead, right? Like is is how manipulating everything. So th we got to talk about when he's on his way back, he actually breaks back into the ship in a sequence that's really tense as well, where he turns all the alarms off and he turns off all the safety measures and he launches himself in. We kept seeing those explosive bolt signs and I was like, this has got to mean something. Sure enough. It looked painful. I was like, that. I don't know. Like, Was that a stuntman who got fucking launched into something? Like, Probably. Yeah, I don't know. it looked pretty brutal. I think he slammed his head into something at one point. So at the end of, of Hal's life, apparently, we don't know for sure, but what seems like the end of Hal's life, uh, he sort of reverts to his original program and he starts singing a song. Oh, man, that song. So good. And then it's slowly getting lower and breaking. It's like, that's so fucking good. Uh, it reminds me of Archive 81, which we just covered recently, where you have the tape sort of distorting and how creepy that can be. And... um it's like the death song of this of this AI um, is really really powerful. So that song is called Daisy Bell, mm -hmm. and uh, it's a vaudeville song that had already been used as one of the earliest pieces of electronic music, uh, as it was the first song ever programmed into a computer to be played back using a simulation of speech synthesis. Wow! So it's a reference to the history of technology in that way that's cool and then also if you're on tiktok that song is used frequently as a as like a popular song really and it's like sort of distorted and sung in the same kind of way hmm. as a reference to this as a you know just the idea of technology singing and distorting is creepy and then the song 
has the line that's like I'm half crazy yeah. and like you know all of that those things are just like wow it really it honestly gives me goosebumps thinking about it like like how how creepy all of the house stuff is yeah gosh so good and then the moment where he actually goes into Hal like the bat, big mainframe and the lights and it's all red looks great when he's it looks really good when he's pulling all those slides out yeah like uh, one like that top down view he's like pulling apart the brain one thing at a time like that's so yeah. cool and you talked about the distorting speech it's it's amazing but we got to move on to this next section here uh this this is a uh, i'm not going to read this because there's some interpretation that's being done okay. by the summary here i'm going to kind of go off of memory of what we're seeing yeah and uh, you react to, to what happened in this, okay. in this film here at the end. <laughs> what so I think happened. we get for sure Dave gets to Jupiter, leaves in one of the uh, EVAs, f- starts flying away. And then there's some sort of monolith, like sort of triangle that's flying around and then lines up with these planets. And then the next thing we look up and we start going through this sort of whooshing of colors and, and uh, seemingly portal of some kind. Uh, we have about a 10 minute scene of different colors and we're going to talk about how that was achieved practically and how amazing and groundbreaking that is on its own. We get Dave waking up in this white room with sort of some uh, Greek architecture kind yeah. of and a bed and a Paintings. room and he's and he's turning. He's uh, he's turning and we see him age. We see an older version of himself. Then we turn again. We see a a seemingly an older version of himself eating turned again. We see an older version laying in a bed looking sickly. And then we turn, I believe, and then turn back and see some sort of child. Well, there's the monolith looking down at him. The monolith. Yeah, yeah. yeah of course. Yeah. And then the child. And then we get a uh, embryo almost embryo. Fetus. Yeah. And then we get a transition with that embryo next to a planet, seemingly Earth. Yeah. And then that's the end of the film. Yeah. OK. So first off. Yeah. The, the, the trippiness of this this travel through space. Um, I didn't I, I knew I, I guess I kind of knew something like this must happen in this movie. Um, I'd seen an image of the baby before, so I knew that the, I didn't know what it was, but like I'd seen that before. So I was like a, a slight, ever so slightly spoiled for this. Um, but still, I had no context for it when I saw it, right? And my heart was pounding so hard during the sequence. And I'm like, I don't know why. And, and I think it was because we kept getting these flashes of Dave apparently in some sort of agony. As, as he's, like, transporting through this. What's actually happening? Where's he going, right? Like, it, it seems like some sort of portal, wormhole, maybe. Something like that. Um, and I kept thinking about a lot of the theories surrounding, like, what it's like to approach a black hole. That's what Interstellar's all about. But there's, like, this one... There's an interesting theory about, like... And I can't explain it. I'm not a theoretical physicist, <laughs> clearly. Um, but there is a theory about how maybe there's one version of you that is sort of suspended and there's one version of you that goes through that spaghettification they talk about you're sort of torn torn apart as you enter the black hole and how there are two simultaneous versions of you that exist i don't know how that all works but i was thinking about that right i was thinking about being torn apart but also that that separation of self and when i started seeing the way he is he he sees himself in these scenes and the self that he sees perceives the ver- previous version of self, right? Like they're interconnected. They're existing in an overlapping time. And to me, that shows that distortion of time that, you know, space is so famous for, that time dilation. And how he's aging so rapidly 
um, and then yet becomes a baby. Um, there's also a moment during the transition where the ship itself, this little pod, takes on a very sperm-like appearance. Things get very liquid. And I thought there was an implication that perhaps some sort of uh, combining, the conjoining, uh, whether metaphorically or literal, in almost a pregnancy sense, like, uh, like he's impregnating the universe, is <laughs> very, very masculine. I don't know. Um, and, you know, the, the thing that holds up with that is that we do eventually get an embryo, right, who, is, who, who appears human but maybe also beyond human. Um, like the something about the eyes and the way that like there was the face actually resembles the actor a little bit of this baby, which I thought was super creepy because he's very angular for a baby for for a freaking fetus. Um, so trippy that sequence with the monolith. Uh, it, it's so cool because like when the um, EVA is in the room, the room looks like a one particular size, but then the EVA is gone and it looks like the room is a different size. There's so many trippy things going on in this room. Um. It's clearly uh, like a construct or something that has been created to communicate something to Dave by this other intelligence. But I think by design, that communication is unknowable and abstract. And when the monolith is at the foot of the bed, it to me, it was the implication that you are dying. This version of you has just rapidly aged to death and you are going to be reborn through this conjoining, this this merging of something that has occurred that perhaps has always been planned. Perhaps this is what has always what what this monolith always wanted. I don't know. Um and and this baby is created that then views Earth and like it has has it has it gone back to Earth or is it just the knowledge is it just like an impartial an imparting of like all knowledge has been given to this to this new life form where it can see earth from this new perspective we also need to talk about that stargate sequence which was what what people have named it and there's a lot okay. of these things that have been named like moon gazer i believe is the name of the monkey the hominin yeah. at the beginning uh star child is the name of the child and stargate is this here so there's names for all this stuff now so yeah this stargate here the way that they achieved this uh is pretty amazing they mounted colored transparencies to the back of a mechanical rig uh the illuminated patterns were visible through a narrow slit on the opposite side now this gets back into that thing that i was talking about before called um slit scan effect which there's a video that i talked about earlier that you should all check out to get more background on this but the idea is um the patterns were only visible through a narrow slit on the opposite side of the rig uh while the camera moved towards the slit the transparencies were passed in front of the light each dolly in exposed half a single frame to complete the sequence technicians had to repeat the process over and over again stanley kubrick originally only set out to complete a handful of preliminary tests but eventually they rented space in an abandoned brazier factory and turned it into a chemical lab and we're doing all these wild tests with the footage and there's uh there's like droplets blobbed into white paint lacquer sort of vats and things like that that were filmed and kubrick shot some of these drip effects himself in a small dark room in new york city wow so like all kinds of wild stuff went into the special effects and creation of the scene and uh it's been referenced a million times oh, yeah. 
it was probably the thing that people walked out of the film originally having just like freaked out having seen something different i read one story that there was like an audience member in the 60s that like freaked out and like started screaming that they'd seen god and like dove through the the screen so <laughs> they like, were probably on know, something if that actually occurred. probably <laughs> and that actually you know brings it back it wasn't a smash hit right away but uh i guess like theaters convinced mgm to leave it in theaters longer so that um because there was like a contingent of like psychedelic takers that would go Dude, watch we gotta get we gotta that. take something and go watch this movie that's a whole exactly. different experience i'm sure so there was like a big uh surge in money i guess and in, in ticket sales for just that yeah i could see that i think that you are all along the same lines that i usually have as well and i do still do um and it's that this is First of all, I think that that this scene is clearly motivated by whatever forces are controlling this monolith or whatever yeah. is going on with that. So he's clearly brought through some sort of experience in the unknown. And then it gets to a point where you think that this person, like like trying to think about what Kubrick was getting into and what I thought for the first time, I think that I saw it as these creatures sort of capturing and like putting this kind of in, in the way that you said uh, in in Interstellar, for example, it's like this tesseract that they pull him through, and then he's able to see things into certain areas and times of his life. This is him being pulled into something that he can perceive as a human being that these people have created for him, right? This like cage almost. And I I, I don't know that like we're it's supposed to be literal that he's turning and seeing himself old at the same time, or if it you know really is, and he's perceiving time differently. But um, Either way, it feels like he's being observed, like he's he's sort of being observed. And it kind of reminds me now, having read the story somewhat recently of the egg and this idea of like someone interacting with an entity beyond their understanding. And this does he pass some sort of test? Is this a test? Is this just something that was always going to happen to him? Was the whole thing a test? Does he pass it? Does he now become some sort of godly embryo? If it was controlling Hal in some way. True reaching out to him through the communication like you were talking about. I don't know, you know, and 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 is he perceiving it is cuz cuz or is he being observed? Yes, I feel like he's being observed, but I also felt like he was observing himself. Yeah. And it, it, throughout all these scenes, I felt his perspective sort of consistently viewing it in horror. But it's strange that he wasn't it, it was still chronological he was still getting older it's not like he was seeing himself younger and then older you know what i mean so yeah. it's almost like well it goes through a tr- goes through a transition in forward in time still until it starts over <laughs> yeah so so what is that yeah i don't it's really tough to say exactly what was being thought of here and uh i i did find something from arthur c clark that i want to read and it's that if you understand 2001 completely we failed we wanted to raise <laughs> far more questions than we answered yeah i get i get that yeah he later expressed some concerns that the film is too hard to follow and explain things more fully in the novelization and subsequent sequels. Which perfectly sets me up for uh, set, uh, talking about what we're going to do next week, which is we're going to read that novelization and going to get some more answers, at least from Arthur C. Clarke's perspective. Um, I'm going to have a week to reflect on this movie and this discussion we just had and uh you know and read that book so i I'm, I'm really excited that we get to come back to this thing at least one more time and talk about it some more because there's so much it feels like there's, right. uh, there's got to be some other angles i haven't considered yet and um if you have not read the novelization maybe even have no interest in reading it you should still check out our episode because we'll tell you like what what it was like and and what we got out of it uh we'll break it all down so hopefully you will join us next week for that
Yeah, and also I, I didn't talk a ton about Kubrick himself sort of as a filmmaker uh, because I knew that we wouldn't have time here, but we have covered Kubrick many times before. So go check out our Dr. Strangelove or our um, Shining coverage. Yep. Which are both good episodes, in my opinion. Kubrick always has so much we can talk about. So if you're a Kubrick friend, do check those out. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review. Super helpful for getting the word out on this podcast. If you're one of those people that I met at the Nebulas and you liked this thing, uh, I'd love to hear from you in the form of that rating and review, whatever app you chose to listen on. Yeah, and make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And I think we're basically on any other social media platform you can look. Yeah, I made a TikTok recently, at Ink to Film, and we I put up an, uh, a little clip of a Stand By Me quote um, with actually movie scenes behind it. Um, so if you want to check that out, follow us on TikTok or at Ink to Film on there. We also have a Patreon. Make sure to check that out. Uh, it's a great way to support us other than leaving a, a rating or review. Yeah. We have many different categories. And for just $2 a month, you get our bonus episodes. And monthly, we cover adaptation adjacent things. And recently, we did Clueless, which was a sort of different interpretation of Emma yeah. by uh, Jane Austen. So yeah, check that out. Yeah, we'd love to have you over there. All kinds of stuff. I think almost 50 episodes. And we have merch and all sorts of things you get access to. So just check out our Patreon. We'd love to have your support. Uh, okay, man. So next week we're coming back for 2001, uh, a space odyssey and, uh, talking about our very first novelization. We've never done a watch first followed by a read. Uh, what do you think? How did, how did it, how did it go? How do you like it? I think that, uh, it's going to be bizarre to go to the story now having seen all of this, but I do think it'll give some good, some good background. And I also, yeah, I think that covering a movie first is is uh you know it's a very interesting feeling i think a lot of times if we're covering the story that inspired a film that i've already seen i get to sort of orient myself within the film and sort of remember certain things that i definitely want to talk about and this time it was like a massive project and it was like all right go and i was like all right i had to try to find everything to talk about so hopefully we did a good job uh let us know there probably be some other things i'll touch on with the film next week that i forgot but uh, again, there's a ton to read out there too. Go check out all the materials that I was talking about and, and do some reading out there. And uh, one of the reasons we wanted to do novelization second is I think it's a very famous one. So if there are any other really famous novelizations out there that you would like for us to cover in a similar way to this one, and you think maybe we should, let us know if you happen to still be listening. Uh, thank you for sticking around to the very end. And until next time, keep adapting. <laughs>